whilst there are certainly continuities with the past, I think there are some big breaks as well. And I think the biggest is the the aggressive politicisation of museums. Um, campaigns like museums are not neutral. Uh, museum, you know, professional bodies. Uh, Museum professionals now highly politicised, openly politicised, and arguing that museums ought to take sides. And when they talk about taking sides, they're not talking about making America great again or promoting Brexit. You know exactly which side they're on. They're talking about hitching the museums that they work for to a particular political agenda that many of their their visitors, their sponsors, their donors don't necessarily agree with. Episode 3, Sackler Sponsorship. Should art be on the side of the angels? Hello and welcome to Behind the Scenes at the Museum with me, Tiffany Jenkins. This is a regular podcast in which I go behind the scenes and discuss the trends and the controversies that are rocking the cultural world. This week, it's the question of ethical arts funding off the back of the Sackler Sponsorship Controversy. So just to recap, on the 19th of March came a game-changer in arts funding. London's National Portrait Gallery and the Sackler Trust announced that they decided not to proceed with the proposed grant of £1 million to the museum. The announcement came after growing pressure by the artist Nan Golden and her supporters over the impact of OxyContin, an opium drug produced by the Sackler family's pharmaceutical company Purdue Pharma. And then, like wildfire, in the days after the announcement that Tate announced it would not seek or accept Sackler donations. The Guggenheim in New York announced that it does not plan to accept any gifts from the Sacklers. And shortly after, the Sackler Trust announced that it would halt all new giving for the time being. So given that in the last 30 years in the UK they've donated between 60 to 80 million pounds to roughly 30 arts organisations, it's quite a significant development in arts sponsorship. So I want to work through whether this is a good or a bad development for the arts. Um, I want to ask what people think who are seated around the table with me, uh, why they think it's happened now, and what does it really mean for the cultural world. So try and set it in a bit of broader context as well as get our views on what we think about the specifics of the Sackler case. I have quite strong opinions about it, I should say that from the outset. I think it was a mistake not to take the money. Um, I think it will bode badly for the arts world. But I have a motley crew with different views and perspectives to thrash it out. Round the table in um, North London we have Waldemar Janicek who's kindly given us his film studios uh, for the recording, an art critic and a television documentary producer and presenter. Michael Savage who's better known as the blogger and critic grumpy art historian and Tom Freudenheim who's an art historian and critic who's run a number of museums including in the role of assistant secretary for museums at the Smithsonian Institution in the States and Tom I think you blog at grumpy Fart, old, something along the lines of that? OFTRM. And what does that stand for? Old Fart Thoughts on Museum. So let's start um, with you, Waldemar. You wrote a piece before the decision was taken, in fact, compelling the dropping of the sponsorship. Why Why do you think they, they should have dropped them the money, and, and do you think it's a good thing that they have? It's never been the case that art is only sponsored or supported by angels. We know that to be true. But I also think that that there are um, times when you really have to give this some solid thought and perhaps just put some, draw some lines in the sand. Um, And I've spent, you know, as a working art critic, I've spent the past 10, 15 years going around London art galleries, watching the growth of the Sackler 
name, you know, the Sackler branding in pretty much every major museum in, in London. You know, the Sackler galleries at the Serpentine, the Sackler rooms at the National Gallery, the Sackler lifts, for heaven's sake, at Tate Modern. You know, it's, it's everywhere. So there was a very strong sense in me that this name was being pushed out there um, with, with, with um, cultural aggression, really. Um, and when I heard Nan Goldin's story um, and found that she had been a victim of um, opioid addiction herself, when I heard her calling for people to be more responsible about where they take their money, um, I have to say it struck a very loud chord with me. And, and although I'm probably like you, Tiffany, fully aware of the dangers of knee-jerk sponsorship reactions, um, and I can certainly see some problems ahead, you know, if, if you had some kind of blanket ban on, on all this sort of sponsorship. I thought in this instance, the sheer weight of evidence of, of the impact of opioid addiction on, on America, and then of course on Britain, because it's a growing problem here, plus Nan Goldin's efforts as an artist to be heard, um, plus my own already existing fear of, of Sackler names being put up everywhere in, in the creation of yet more posh rooms, and it led me to, 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 to believe that actually we don't need another posh room as much as we need some help for those people suffering from the opioid epidemic. Michael, what do you think? I think it's true that the Sackler family were trying to burnish their image by aggressively pursuing naming rights to museums. And I think, you know, wanting their name plastered everywhere tells you that they're trying to buy something here. But ironically, I think the campaign against them is going to make, mean that museums play even more of a role in burnishing the names of people who may have less than savoury reputations. Because now, anyone who gives money to the National Portrait Gallery and gets through all of their ethical committees um, will, will have the imprimatur not only of sponsoring the National Portrait Gallery, but of the National Portrait Gallery saying that they are more moral and more ethical than the Sackler family. And that's going to make every future donation much more controversial than before, but also potentially more valuable for people burnishing reputations. So are there any um, lines that you would draw, money that you think institutions shouldn't take? I think it's a question of what you're getting for the money. Um, you know, I think you wouldn't question somebody, um, you know, buying from your shop or putting money into a donation box, regardless of where it's come from. I think that's an ethical standard that very few people would hold to. The question is, what are they buying for the money? Um, I'm much more concerned by things like the National Portrait Gallery closing early, quite regularly now, for private events. And that's something that hasn't been picked up very much or criticised very much, but that's a far greater insult to the public than a name over a door or a name in a lift, which you know, might be grating sometimes, but you know, frankly, uh, I, I think it's worth taking the money for that, that, that kind of fairly trivial, um, you know, aesthetic insult maybe of having you know the Sackler name plastered everywhere but compared to not being allowed into the museum at all that's more worrying and worse still I think is uh, places like the Wallace collection where they have wedding parties you know I can't imagine um, anywhere less suitable for a wedding party. The point of a wedding party is, is to get drunk and behave raucously. Um, the, maybe the maybe this is your wedding. Well, <laughs> <laughs> the, you know, the, the Wallace collection filled with um, you know, precious and also immensely fragile works of art is regularly renting itself out for posh parties. That to me is far more worrying than a name over a door. Tom, you've presumably had to take money in your role? Um, I've had to take money, but never, um, I confess, never under in 
this particular climate. Okay, um, I don't want to sound condescending, but um, as the as the senior in the room, I, you know, I've seen this before, and I've been through this before, starting in Berkeley in the 1960s when I was doing museum work, um, and and there. Are, there are moments when these things arise, and we're we're in that kind of moment. Um, but I do think the Sackler situation has specificity about it that is that is different from the general situation of yeah, all the money that we get is probably or ninety nine percent of it is probably tainted in some way if we start looking at it. Um, and in the Sackler case, first of all, these are recent gifts that were made specifically with money that was earned through this particular drug, okay? In other words, I mean, I, I worked with Arthur Sackler when, when the Sackler Gallery at the Smithsonian was, was built. Um, and, I mean, I knew Arthur not very well, but, um, but, you know, that was a particular kind of drug PR that he was a genius at inventing. But the fact is that the other two Sackler brothers, um, that fortune is really made specifically on the back of OxyContin. And, uh, and to me, that represents a, a somewhat different situation that's very identifiable, um, that isn't really the same as saying, well, all the money is tainted. On the other hand, I think Michael's point about, um, about cleaning names, potentially, um, is a very interesting one, which I hadn't thought of, and, and I do think that the, there's a risk in that. If you, if you start having vetting situations that um, certain kinds of money gets vetted properly uh, and then is thought to be okay, um, I find that, I would find that very disturbing. I mean, that is sort of what happened after the announcement was made. There was a piece in the art newspaper about how the British Museum takes tobacco money still. And you could see immediately after this decision that everybody started going back to the balance sheets and seeing where the money was coming from. And it might be a temporary thing, but I wonder if it also puts future donors off. I mean, we've seen with the Booker, the man Booker has dropped, been dropped by the man Booker um, to become the Booker Prize. You know, there's a slight nervousness around what is right on and what is not right on. Sure, but um, I, I may not have been around as long as Tom, but I've been around a long time. And I remember lots of these scandals in the past, and they didn't lead to a kind of nuclear situation where everything finished. I mean, I remember I used to work at The Guardian. I remember writing week after week about about the um, United Technologies Corporation, which was the company that used to make cruise missiles. Um, and this was the time when Greenham Common was happening, and all those women were sitting in, outside Greenham Common complaining about American bases and cruise missiles being uh, being sighted in Britain. And they went on to, remember, sponsor lots of exhibitions. There was a particularly bad one was the George Stubbs show at the Tate. You know, cruise missiles sponsoring stubs. And I complained about it in the, in, the, in the Guardian. Other people complained. And it stopped. And the United Technologies Corporation sort of curled up and went away. The thing is, sometimes you have to draw a line in the sand, you know. You can't... United Technologies Corporation had no business sponsoring George Stubbs exhibitions. It's not going to change anything, though, is it, about the opioid crisis? In America well, it there. is because the Sackler Foundation has now announced that they're going to put some money into a, a rehabilitation centre, and 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 you know, ten million dollars will help a lot. I mean, that's the whole point of the Nan Golden approach. She hasn't said throw the money away. She has said instead of putting money into posh rooms in art galleries, 
put it into rehab centres and places where people can get better. And that seems to me a perfectly sensible trade-off. Where will the money come from, though? You say these things have happened before and the arts find the money, and maybe they have, but we are talking about a climate where there is dwindling state sponsorship. Well, that's been so for a long time as well. I mean, ever since the Margaret Thatcher era. I mean, let's not conflate these two evils. The fact that the state is not putting enough money into Mm -hmm. art is not the same thing as saying that, that sponsorship is always good. You know, I mean, I don't agree with the, with, with the fact that, that, that the arts are supported so little. But, you know, when you go to something like um, the Blavatnik building at Tate Modern, right, paid for by this fellow Blavatnik who um, is no doubt absolutely innocent of all suggestions that he's anything <laughs> other than, uh, you know, a Russian billionaire. But he did support um, Trump's uh, inauguration. He's put money into into the Republicans, etc., and he put a whacking great chunk into this £260 million of unnecessary money, as far as I'm concerned, that went into building the Tate extension. Now, would the Tate be an, an immeasurably weaker location or some kind of lesser museum if it didn't have its £260 million collection of foyers at Tate Modern? I don't think so. And, and you know, once the money's there, it doesn't necessarily mean that making a museum bigger and bigger and bigger is a good thing. I mean, it, the bedrock of all this, the, 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 the final position is that art isn't about that. It isn't actually about posh rooms. It isn't about, about putting your names on walls. It's about an independent communion between you and an artwork. And, and, and sometimes these things can get in the way of that. Michael, do you agree? Very much. They can be more nimble this way? Well, I, I think there's two separate points, one of which I agree with very strongly, which is that um, museums probably do spend too much money on posh extensions that they then can't afford to keep up at the expense of doing the very basic things well. Um, big donors want to have naming rights and want to create big, new, exciting things, and uh, museum boards want to make a splash by being you know, the board or the director or the chair of trustees who, who launched a great big building project. Um, that's not necessarily what museums need. They often need money for basic running costs that they're not getting. But I think that's an entirely separate point from the ethics of accepting individual donations. Um, and that is where I think the problem is. I think I also disagree a little bit with both of you about how new this is, because whilst there are certainly continuities with the past, I think there are some big breaks as well. And I think the biggest is the the aggressive politicisation of museums, um, campaigns like museums are not neutral. Uh, museum, you know, professional bodies, uh, museum professionals now, highly politicised, openly politicised, and arguing that museums ought to take sides. And when they talk about taking sides, they're not talking about making America great again or promoting Brexit. You know exactly which side they're on. They're talking about hitching the museums that they work for to a particular political agenda that many of their their visitors, their sponsors, their donors don't necessarily agree with. And I think this is part of that trend. And I think it's going to do enormous harm to museums. And I think, you know, your, your point about state funding, I mean, that's really going to be at risk if museums become left-wing campaigning institutions in the way that some uh, university departments have been. Tom? I, I mean, I think that the museum's taking sides issue is a serious one, but, it, uh, but it's been going on for as long as I remember, as long as I've been in the field, um, certainly during the Vietnam War era. Um, Can you give us an example? Well, sure. We, we, we closed, you know, when there were demonstrations, I remember in Berkeley we closed the museum because, you know, we had to 
show that we were we were part of um, what what the the protest against the, protest the war against the war, and we showed art that was protesting against the war. Um, so it has it has a long history. I think I actually think this is a this is a beneficial moment for this issue, okay? Because it's going to it's going to go away because unfortunately, you know, the the news cycle that we live with, but with, that we've always lived with, actually, just makes these things go away. But while it's here, it seems to me useful to take advantage of it um, without going overboard. That that is. Um, I do worry about vetting donors, for example. I think that's that's bizarre because it's not it's not really possible, and any any institution that thinks it can do that is is dreaming. Um, but it's happened right now. There's a big issue with the Whitney Museum in New York, which you know I'm sure you're following. Um, tell us a bit. Tell well, us a bit about because that. one they're one of their trustees or the vice chair of their board of trustees, whom I don't know. I think his name is Canders, um, is. Uh, uh, the head of a company that makes um, weapons and that supplies things that were used at the southern border, tear gas, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And so, um, a document was just online today. Uh, have you seen it? Um, that that describe that it's such a '60s thing about you know rethinking the institutions. And I don't and I don't mean to sound cynical because I do think that 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 this needs to happen every now and again and we should rethink you know how these things came about and what and and what these institutions are really for and but on the other hand you know how they how and why they survive uh, in in various climates but the the document that that was just issued signed by a slew of academics and art critics and art historians etc is um it's just silly because it it simply describes you know, colonialism and uh, the green earth and, you know, everything's, everything's being lumped together. Mm. And um, I always, I have to tell you that my, my cliche that when I was working in, at the Smithsonian, the Holocaust Museum was being built, and I know I'll get some pushback for this, was I said, you know, I love museums, I work in museums, I believe in museums, but, um, you know, murdering people is too important a subject to be left to museums. Okay, and you know, and I still believe that about about all these these feel good Holocaust projects. Um, so they're not going to solve all of mankind's problems. That you know, museum is it's just a museum. <laughs> I think things are a little bit different. I think perhaps Tom, when you were working in the sixties and seventies, you saw the beginning of this intense politicization of museums, which is working itself out through in waves. I think maybe at that time it was almost like radical, whereas now it's much more mainstream. And if we think about the last couple of years, whether and um, there's a whole host of controversies that have um, besieged museums over repatriation. You've had the Macron report last October. The Whitney, I think, was subject to controversy over a painting by a white person about a back death. Cultural appropriation. It feels, and this may be subjective, but it does feel like a tipping point. And it strikes me that it's because those people that were once on the outside of the institution raging at it, demanding it be political are now very much on the inside and it's mainstream. And you've seen all sorts of institutions, I think, just capitulate. Tom, you're shaking your head. I, 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 think, that, I think it's a tipping point, yes, but I think that's partly because 
the means of communication have changed. Mm -hmm. And I think that's I think that's the big difference. Okay. So more it's easier to get more people into the conversation, into the controversy, whatever, um, than it used to be. Um, but I'm not sure that that the change is as radical as, as it seems. I think that it's just that we we know more about it more immediately. Also, um, you know, the big difference, surely, in those intervening years has been the growth of the museum industry. Yeah. I mean, the number of people involved in it now. I mean, when I started writing about art, you bumped into a curator once a month. Now you bump into a hundred in one show. You know, I've been to exhibitions where twenty people have curated an exhibition of five objects, um, and all these people they do form a monoculture. I mean, that is that is true. You know, you don't meet too many Brexit supporting Trump fans in in the art world here mm. or indeed in, in the states, um, and all of that means that they are fertile territory for um, these, this this rise of identity politics that we're currently experiencing um, and I think Tiffany like you I'm terrified of it in, in many of its aspects because it closes down I think so 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 many many important things but at the same time I'm like Tom confident it'll pass you know um, I mean we are currently going through a period where everybody's waving their flags and through their social media connections are able to have their complaints heard and silly things are happening like people ganging up on Monet's portrait of his wife because she's wearing a kimono and demanding that this cultural appropriation be stopped. You know, that, that'll all fade. It's part of this institutionalising of, of art that we're seeing. I'm always comforted by the thought that, you know, when the Impressionists happened and the Impressionist revolution happened, you know, that what they were fighting against was the system that, had, 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 that was very similar to now. It was the institutionalization of art where... Uh, according to the salon, art should do you good. Museum's task is to make you a better person. So let's see some Greeks taking on some Persians and beating them in these big historic pictures. This is what art is. And if you're a good person, we'll give you a legend d'honneur. We'll send you to Italy for the big prize. You can come to the most popular exhibition of the moment, the salon exhibition, you know, where half a million people would turn up in Paris. And what happens? You know, some people put on an, a show above a, above a garage in, in Nadal's studio, call themselves, well, they didn't call themselves the Impressionists, they were dismissed as that, and everything changed. You know, that's, that's my hope, and that's actually my belief. I think that um, however institutionalised these things become, they're there to be overthrown because the pendulum always swings back. It always swings back. Michael. But it wasn't just institutionalisation in France, it was also the market played a really big role. And people were buying from the salons. That was part of the source of their power, was the, the, the art-buying public. And the Impressionists broke into that, that art-buying world. I think today it's much more institutionalised. It's much more about getting the grant from the official body. It's much more about the Arts Council grant or, you know, the NEA grant. Um, and I think the interrelation between all of these different institutions today is creating a much more entrenched monoculture than you used to have. And for a sign of where this can go, I kind of look to the universities, where again, you can look back to the 60s and say that there were some similar trends there, which is absolutely true. But what's happened since has been, you know, a steady, relentless politicisation first, and secondly, 
creation of a, a very strong monoculture, where in some subjects like psychology, you've got 90 plus percent um, of, uh, of academics um, as Democrats and, and virtually no Republicans at all. And that's quite a striking change. And it really affects the entire culture. And I think that is self-consciously and deliberately being established in the art world, much to its detriment. And I think the opportunities to overthrow that are much harder than they were in the more open world of the salon. And how does that relate to sponsorship, would you say? Well, I think sponsorship is part of that because it's it's the people who are politically campaigning against disfavoured donors. Um, the one that I always find most outrageous is the campaign against oil companies, where nobody is saying that we should individually boycott oil, mm-hmm. that we shouldn't drive, that we shouldn't take buses or trains, that we shouldn't buy anything that's been sent by ship. Nobody's saying that. But the producers are demonised. So the idea that you would take money from the people who serve you the things that you desperately want and enjoy in your everyday life suddenly becomes grotesquely unethical and immoral when they give money to an art gallery. You know, I just find utterly surreal. But again, you know, it's about this this kind of empty virtue signalling in the absence of real virtue. Hang on, Tom. Now, I must, I must just intervene that quickly, because the thing about BP, and I agree with a lot of what you said, I'm, I'm as firmly against blind identity politics as you are. But the thing about BP was not so much to do with the fact that we need oil to drive our cars, but, but what happened in terms of ecology and the desperation of the landscape, particularly in Nigeria, where they had you know their oil fields. And it's, 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 it's the green aspect of what BP wasn't doing that encouraged the protesters. And, and they had my vote on that, frankly. Um, and, I, and you know if you look at BP's history in, as art sponsors as well, you know, nothing's actually stopped it. You know, they were used to be at the Tate, then they moved over to the British Museum. People come along every now and then and complain but they haven't actually managed to to, to completely get rid of them um, so green green issues are issues I support and if someone comes along to an art gallery and, and waves a green issue flag at me I'll support them you know but and, in a way isn't that isn't that the question so you support such issues green issues most people do uh, do they necessarily want BP to drop its sponsorship. I mean, how re- my point is, how representative and meaningful is your point of view? Like, well, why, why, why should you decide? It's as representative as protesting against Brexit by walking down the mouth, you know. I mean, it's, it's a it's a point of, 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 of criticism. It's it's just shouting and saying something. That's what happens in democratic societies. And the fact that the art world is, is more dependent than some worlds on sponsorship, in a way, is neither here nor there. It doesn't mean I have to stop thinking what I think about about what I think are bad people or bad situations. I mean, it's just, it's just democracy in action. And um, if I thought for one minute that every time something that I hated had to stop and it was then someone drew a red line through it and it was gone, then I wouldn't feel that way about it. But it doesn't happen that way. You know, people come, they make their protests. And if you can't make protests in the art world, for heaven's sake, where can you? You know, um, and of course, this is rather interesting blurring that takes place now between as it were protests and performance art mm. you know um, a, a, agreed it's again another aspect of the monoculture but when you sort of see the bp protests at the british museum where people smuggled in their 500 foot long flag and draped it around the central hall you know it was quite actually quite entertaining i was there most, <laughs> most people in the great court thought it was something that the museum was putting on yeah. <laughs> i do wonder i just i just before i bring you in tom i do wonder though 
You say, uh, if you can't protest in the arts, where can you protest? Absolutely right. But it strikes me that that is where all the protest is taking place. So it's more that the culture mm. is a way to enact political change. And that's what you saw in the beginning of the 60s. Yeah. And maybe politically, that's what the problem is. Yes, but also it, it, it represents, uh, it, the culture is where the power structure is represented most visibly. And I think that's one of the reasons it becomes um, it becomes a target. And I think that's okay. Uh, in other words, the, these conversations are healthy. When they're not healthy is when one side takes over completely. And that, that gets to the monoculture discussion that we we're having. And, um, and I fear that's, that's, where we, that's where we are too much of the time. I was just in Berkeley um, uh, about three weeks ago, and I noticed a big sign in the restaurant that said, hate is not welcome here. And then I thought, oh, yeah, but I bet that doesn't include hating Donald Trump. Um, and so uh, it's really, it, it's really a very, it's a very complicated and nuanced um, issue because the university prides itself on being a place uh, of openness and a marketplace of ideas and all that sort of thing, except when it's not. But I do think the arts are a particularly good target because they, they represent um, the, the jewels of, of people in power. I think they're a terrible target. Um, Hegel's got this concept of the uh, the beautiful soul, you know, the person who um, who, who likes to to criticise but won't get his hands dirty and won't won't actually get involved in in taking tough decisions and and doing anything difficult. Just wants to you know parade virtue. I guess we'd say now virtue signalling. These dainty people, sort of you know going around with their beautiful soul, telling everyone that everything is terrible, but when it comes to actually making omelettes, they're the ones who don't want to break eggs, even though they'll, they'll quite happily eat the result at the end. And I, I sort of feel that with something like BP, I mean, I, I've crossed BP, I've crossed anti-BP picket lines to the National Gallery, proudly, <laughs> and they, they won't say anything about Nigeria. I mean, Nigeria had happened years and years beforehand. They, they were talking in the most general terms about climate change, and that was what their banners were about, their leaflets were about, and their slogans were about. And that's utterly misplaced. If you want to do something about climate change, or what BP's doing in Nigeria, or the OxyContin scandal... The place to, to do that is not outside the art gallery that they're sponsoring. It always feels like they're, they're flipping, flipping it around. They're saying to the art galleries, you should have more beautiful souls. You, art galleries, should be more perfect so that I can feel really good about myself when I go there and feel that I'm doing something tremendously moral. And then I'll drive my SUV home and, and pretend that that's, uh, that's nothing to do with it. That's just, that's, that's just being cynical there. I mean, I... I, I go with you on the beautiful soul front most of that journey but i mean you know some people are doing it for for very deeply held reasons and you just just because um they're an easy target in this instance doesn't doesn't make them all wicked you know and i'm i'm old school on this i i, I think art should be on the side of the angels you know I, but who, who are the angels well it, uh, you know on the side of the beautiful soul or whatever it is you know i mean the the being a being a good person is 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 somehow compatible with 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 great art um now of course i know that that's there are a million arguments against that and a, and a million people will shout emil nolder at me or something but I, I just have a general feeling that art tends to be on the side of the good people yeah. i wonder also if there's something something within the art world where you have a lot of not all but a lot of contemporary art is quite political 
and you've only had that also since the 60s and 70s. It's so, particularly true now. I mean, yeah. the, the Turner Prize this year is just basically um, you know, four huge video installations about pro-Palestinian politics, in essence. Um, you know, I mean, the, the most revolutionary thing you could do in that show is, is, is to support the state of Israel. Not that I would, and not that I, you know, of that's course, not my yeah. position either. But I mean, it, it, it's that sort of exhibition, isn't it? Um, but that'll pass as well. I mean, you know, politics is, is not really a good subject for art, is it? I mean, it's, it's, in the past, it's very rarely been. Um, a subject for, for art of any kind. I mean, mm. there's a few war pictures in the, in the Baroque era and the occasional general would pop up being portrayed in the Renaissance. But by and large, art hasn't ever been fruitful when it's dealt with politics. And so this current situation we have now when so many people are lecturing us and preaching to us through this tedious political art that's being made, um, I'm, I'm convinced that that will pass. It's, it's a moment. Don't you think that's part, again, part of the monoculture that, that Michael's referring to. In other words, they're making that because that's what they perceive will be taken in for take for for the for the prize. In other words, there's a relationship between what artists think they're gonna how how artists think they're gonna get ahead um, in 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 relationship to that particular kind of event. I don't think that's necessarily true for all artists making art, but I do think that in terms of getting into certain kinds of shows or getting into biennales and that sort of thing, um, I do think they're, they're already thinking ahead as to where the fashions are going. I'm sure that's the case. I mean, I'm quite struck by the, the dissonance between what's going on in the broader political world versus what's going on in the arts world. They're kind of going in different directions. In the political world, we're getting you know more and more undermining of, of key norms that we've relied upon and expected for a very long time. Um, extreme liberalism in certain cases. You know, we've got Donald Trump, for goodness sake. It's an astonishing turn of events. And yet within the universities... Oh, well, we've got him a little bit as well. Uh, yeah, you know, within the universities, you've got more and more purging of anything that deviates even slightly from really a very, very kind of left-wing identitarian perspective. And so on the one hand, you've got more and more purity inside and people really hysterically reacting to the smallest and most trivial slights. And yet you step off the campus and you've got Donald Trump still as president. And I wonder if there isn't a, a dynamic going on here where people within the art world or the university world monoculture want more and more firmly to police that monoculture internally, to turn on critics who basically agree with them about most things, to, to promote kind of ideological purity in the way that, you know, that the Puritans did during the Reformation. You know, they, they weren't fighting Catholics, they were fighting Protestants with very, very marginally different beliefs. And I wonder if that isn't not just a distraction, but more than that, if it isn't actually a barrier to addressing some of those bigger things in the real world. So as we try and make the art world more and more beautiful and more and more perfect, we're actually losing sight of the very big, big issues that are going on and going wrong in the real world outside. Well, I mean, that's clearly true. Uh, I don't recall in the past three years seeing a single meaningful artwork about Brexit I haven't seen too many about Trump, or maybe there are more in America, but heaven only knows how many bits of identity politics I've had to deal with. Um, it's as if it's part of this larger global world we're living in, where people look down at their own navel and deal with their own identity issues. 
um, and make that the thing that they're most concerned with. And the bigger idea of sharing some concerns about things that affect more of us on a much wider level, that tends to be overlooked. And um, yet I often feel that everybody's looking down and nobody's looking up and out. Um, and it's, it's undoubtedly a shortcoming. Um, it's, it's, it's as if this whole selfie culture that we live in, which has been backed up totally and made possible by social media, um, has come to dominate that. I'm struck by what Michael was saying in terms of the kind of rigidity and puritanical nature of public debate um, and the kind of policing of all sorts of things in the arts, where it strikes me that the reason why there hasn't been very good political art in the past is because art isn't the best medium for politics. It's only It only works a few times, whether it's Delacroix's Liberty Leading the People or Picasso's Guernica. You know, there's just a moment when it can encapsulate what's going on in the country. So it strikes me that the art is a place of complexity and ambiguity and uncertainty and working out what it feels like. What does it feel like to live in this climate? Not what do I think? And that kind of kind of pontificating that you get. Well, what does it feel like? It's a really odd time. And in a way, I look to literature to take me back to the past, different times in the past, to give me that sense of feeling. And that's what I'd like to see, the arts, which is why I do think they kind of do need a little bit of money. They don't have to have, we don't have to have those huge buildings. I mean, most of them have nothing to put in them. So it's more about the spectacle of culture rather than the arts. But something that just explores what it's like to be now be alive now would be, would be great. I'm going to tread on everybody's toe around this table and <laughs> say the unmentionable thing. Museum charges. See, there's no such thing as a free lunch in life. There really, really isn't. And all of this comes back to the fact that museums can't fund themselves. The state has withdrawn its money, so they head for the sponsors. Um, I've marched through the streets demanding free museum entry lots of times in my life, every time it pops up as an issue. But I have come round to to thinking, well, maybe it has to happen to some level or some degree because, you know, these things can't run on nothing. And if if, if keeping them going pushes them into the hands of, of, of wicked people or bad organisations, then I think we need to possibly face up to the fact that they can't keep going on nothing. They need something. It's, in my view, it's my view the state should step in and, and take that role and, and, and not but spend money. But I still money, think the, it, the thing know. about the state is that they're not necessarily the angels either. No. That's my... But, but, but let me... So you, you need a couple of uh, devils, don't you? You need the bad devils of the state, the bad right. devils of the sponsors, and the bad devils of the public. I, I want to counter that a little bit because most of the statistics in the states, at least, indicate that um, museums that charge get relatively little of their income if from from um, admissions, and I think the only exceptions are places in in cities like New York where you've got you know hundreds of thousands of people going through the door. Um, I've run museums in what I call normal communities, you know, regular medium-sized cities where there are a handful of people going in the door. Um, that doesn't make it a non functional, not good museum, uh, but it doesn't produce any revenue. It's not likely to produce revenue, and it and it keeps out um, even more people. So I think that the the admissions issue is a is is problematic, and it's particularly problematic for me. I grew up near a museum. I went in and out. It was like part of the park, 
And um, a museum is not a performance. It's not like going to theater, uh, film, concert, or whatever that has a beginning and an end. Uh, the whole wonderful thing about a museum is you can walk in and out of it and see one, you know, because you like one picture and you just want to leave. But I'm like you. I, I value the times I've, I've been able to wander into a museum. But I think, and I totally take your point about, about places that aren't in New York or in Washington. But, I mean, Tate Modern is the size it is requires so much money to keep it going so that this monstrous museum i mean i can't, I can't imagine how much that costs in its daily upkeep and that's a different situation from a sort of more manageable no, museum where you have local help and proper local people involved in that you know there's a different scale there isn't there and you're also perhaps focused on the collection yeah and it strikes me that a lot of these big museums just aren't so in a way they're kind of statutory duty to the object and to showing the object has been forgotten. Michael, I'm going to give you the last word. Well, that's certainly true of the Tate, where they, they keep getting rid of the uh, the best curators and uh, replacing them with social justice warriors. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I, I'm this is grumpy art historian, <laughs> you can tell. I'm horrified by the, by the monoculture of museums. I mean, it was striking that once National Portrait Gallery turned down the Sackler money, every other museum said, oh yeah, me too, me too. <laughs> One thing that I'd like to see is just a bit more diversity. Um, I'd like to see more political diversity. I'd like to see uh, more diversity of, of operating model. Uh, I'd like to see them trying to do different things. I mean, what we see now is museums talk an awful lot about diversity, but they mean exactly the same thing by that, and they implement it in exactly the same way. And I think that that's a great shame because museums can do lots of different things, but ought really to be focused more on their collection than on uh, social and political missions. And that's something that, that I just think is, has, been, has been lost and forgotten. So I'd make a plea for, for really lazy curators. I think that would be great. I think curators who don't want to uh, change the world, who don't want to build a, a massive new wing, who just you know, love art, know a little bit about it, and want to share that with visitors. I mean, it's really quite a simple thing. Um, there's an awful lot about the world that needs to be changed, and there are an awful lot of uh, demonstrations that ought to be held. But trying to make museums into beautiful souls of the world is worse than a distraction. It's a barrier. Okay, lazy curators, here we come. Thank you, Baltimore Grumpy Art Historian Tom Freudenham. Behind the Scenes at the Museum was written and presented by Tiffany Jenkins. The producer was Jack Fillimore. <laughs>